This episode is sponsored by the Foundation for Airway Health, or FAH. FAH is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to help educate parents, educators, and practitioners, and to cure children and adults of airway center disorders, or ACD. ACD impacts how we breathe because it increases the amount of effort we put into breathing just to survive. When not recognized, the expressions of the ACD are treated and the underlying disorder remains. No age group is immune from poor airway health. Often associated with older, obese men, ACD or other manifestations of poor airway health can be present in infants, children, teens, young adults, and slender women. Visit airwayhealth.org to learn more. On this episode, we have Nancy Rothstein. Nancy began her career in finance working in the cutting-edge areas of derivatives and financial futures. Because of a snoring spouse, she decided to change directions in her life and became the sleep ambassador, advocating for sleep through writing, teaching, and consulting to corporations, including for LinkedIn. Nancy, thank you so much for being on our show. It is my absolute pleasure to be with you, and for those of us who are just listening Asim has on a bright yellow shirt, which reminds us there is always sun behind the clouds. And for many, that's a pretty cloudy time. But again, the sun is always there. That's so beautiful. Thank you for saying that. And it's because of things like that that make me want to adopt you as my aunt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been writing to me, aunt, so um, I take that. Well, I wanted to share with you that um, I have followed your advice and I got good sleep last night. Amen. (laughs) So I'm I'm well rested for this. And that was important to me. Um, Share with us, Nancy. um, You're in Chicago now. Is that where you were born? I was born in Chicago. I have lived overseas. I have lived in um, New York, went to school at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. My MBA was here at University of Chicago. What I loved about Chicago was that you tasted all four seasons. Yeah. And that was important to me. Not that one was more of a favorite of the other, but that was one. And another was that the lake was so close to where I grew up. Mm. And so water was very important to me and going to the beach and, and, and now as an adult walking while I have 18 miles in front of me, I'm like, Michigan, even though it's all close right now, but. That's lovely. So it comes to mind that uh, the way we were brought together is through the son of Ellen Cohn, who was a childhood friend of yours. Since we were four, since I moved, we lived on a dead end street. So Ellen and I go way back and we went to camp together in Maine Wow. which I have a sign over there. It says, welcome to Maine, the way life should be. Right. And I'm still very engaged with the camp. Okay. Uh, 100, it's 105 years old. Wow. And my daughters went. And it's still no electricity in the cabins, no hot water in the cabins. Yes, there's a shower house. But I think more than ever in this day and age for kids to go somewhere where there's no technology. It's mm. all, you, you surrender your phone and it's done. Mm. And you look at people and you relate to people and you cry and you laugh and you hug. I, we still don't know if there will be camp this summer, you know, sure. social distancing in a cabin of a small cabin of 12 girls plus <laughs> or minus could be difficult. So it's, it's, it will be interesting, but it, it, those were the kinds of things that colored a lot yeah. of, in fact, I, I did a lecture for something called the Foundation for Jewish Camps a few years ago. And I said, camp was the perfect place to teach sleep as a life skill. 
Wow. Because the kids get rid of their technology for the yeah. most part at most of these yeah. camps. They're outdoors a lot. Yeah. They're tired. And they go to sleep and they have taps and respect about talking after taps. And um, who would have thought sleep needed to be taught as a life skill? Amazing. Well, you've clued into that and you are doing just that for us. Um, taking a, uh, just going back again, uh, we share an alma mater in Penn. I'm curious, yes. what, what drew you to that uh, university? So it's a good question. I was very drawn to the East. My, my grandparents were from the East Coast. My mother was there as a child. Um, it, was, it was very comfortable to me. And Ellen, Ellen's mother um, knew about it my mm -hmm. friend Ellen, Phil's mom. And that's how we got there, but I never looked back. I mean, I forged relationships. I, I always say I became Easternized early. Okay. And so when I wanted, when I was looking at schools, I sort of had an Ivy League bent. Okay. And I just, I loved, I loved Penn. I loved the fact that it was urban, but beautiful. Mm. And um, that was sort of did it for me. That's great. And while you were there, is that where you developed an interest in finance or did that happen after graduating? You know, I majored in international relations and um, Mark and what was it? International relations with a minor in whether it was finance or marketing. I did probably 30, 40 percent of my coursework at Wharton. Right. And I spent my junior year abroad. So I came back and, and then I, you know, I, I went to work on Wall Street and I wanted to get an MBA and I ended up doing a joint program at the University of Chicago and First Chicago at the time, which is now J.P. Morgan Chase, where I was what was called a first scholar. So mm -hmm. you rotated around the bank every six months and you, um, you got your MBA. And I, I was telling um, the head of exec ed at University of Chicago recently, I said, you know, it's crazy, Mark. I remember being in my corporate finance class and the mainframe was like a huge room and I wasn't particularly quantitative and I was so proud of myself getting through Hamada's corporate finance. <laughs> and then I took case studies in corporate finance and it was like it all came alive. Wow. I mean, I was much more HBS kind of person or, or North Kellogg. But there I was at University of Chicago, and I'll never regret it because I could understand the stuff that was in this book I wrote and then it ended up editing. Like, I couldn't believe I was editing like Marty Leibowitz, who wrote Inside the Yield Curve. So, um, it's a handbook of financial futures. So you got into derivatives. Well, I always asked, and I to this day, what they derived from? And virtually no one can ever answer that. <laughs> It's a derivation of an asset, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, talk about assets. That we won't get the, until you ask me to. But the segue there is one of your most important assets is being well rested. Beautiful. Well done. <laughs> it's nice. It's coming. It's certainly coming. Um, uh, you had experiences at Oppenheimer and, and you work with the, the London Futures Exchange, I mean, just these amazing experiences. So you are really a, uh, a pundit in this arena. Well, I was, you know, I was an entrepreneur and somebody once said to me, you know, we, at least we don't have arrows in our back and a bit of a pioneer. And I was at First Chicago and one of my assignments was to look at the futures market. 
Uh, I'd been in cash management, and I was now, I think, working for the uh, CFO of the bank. And asked me, what are these futures things, these financial futures and these interest rate futures? What are these things? And I started exploring it and, and did this big paper and interviewed lots of people. And before you knew it, I was starting a division for Chicago Financial Futures Advisory Service. Wow. And I'm this little young peon, and I'm starting this thing. And one of our fees was a quarter of a million dollars to do the training program for the members of the London International Financial Futures Exchange. Spent about three months at back and forth, long periods of time in London working on it. And I had this man, we didn't do the internet yet. We had a manual and mm -hmm. teaching these finance people what hedging was. And it wasn't just about pork bellies. Yeah. So then I said, well, this is a book. <laughs> 140 pages later and I took a leave from no I, yeah I took a leave from the bank I was pregnant I was having a baby I was having a book but I recognized that nobody understood this and needed to yeah. that's sort of I never thought of it till this very moment that's sort of what happened with sleep yeah I mean I said you've got all these fun I remember lecturing in London for institutional investor there were like 250 people in the audience. And I'm like, like I'm this young person standing up there talking about hedging, giving this whole slide thing. I've been meditating at that point for a long time. And well, probably 10 years at that point. And I'm sort of having this out of body experience watching myself thinking, I cannot believe all these people are listening to me. Thinking, you better get, you better like connect back to yourself because you're gonna forget where you are. But then I, you know, I lectured at McCord, what was it, at the Hyatt near O'Hare Airport to like a thousand CP, at an AICPA conference about what, what is hedging, how does it work? Mm. And then they did videos of me for the bank examiners in Washington. Like, what did I know? I mean, I just happened to recognize that people needed to know more about this mm. and they didn't. And I had to put it in a finance framework that they, could understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is what is so fascinating to me, Nancy, because you are a, a thought leader in this space. Um, very successful, amazing career is is ahead of you in your future. But you make this change. Guide us through that. The decisions that were behind that change. So, I have to say, it all started with a snoring spouse. I didn't know, you know, and, and that, so Natalie was, is now 29. This came out in 2007 or eight, my daddy snores, but she's in kindergarten. So she's six to seven and I'm in the kindergarten classroom and I keep nodding off. I'm helping, you know, I'm not working full time at that point. Um, yes, I, I'm actually taken over. I shouldn't say that I've taken over my husband's business at Oppenheimer managing about 150 million because he's going to run another firm in corporate finance, small cap stuff and, and get that up a scene. I'm coming back in my next life, dumb and bitchy. <laughs> You've earned so, it. You have earned I, it. I, enough, you know, who's going to do the financial statement? Do I, you know, please, <laughs> I don't, I don't like Quicken. I mean, bless you Quicken, you help a lot of people, but you know, like I don't love spreadsheets and Excel spreadsheets. I do them, but I don't love them. Right. 
So I write this book on a piece of construction paper. I could pull it out and show you. And because I, when I lecture to kids, I always show them what it, how this started. And I wrote my daddy snores because, mm -hmm. and then I started to realize, wow, this is a big issue in homes everywhere. And fast forward, I become the sleep ambassador and I take my name off the door at managing the money because I think somebody else can do all this finance stuff, but nobody's looking at the ROI of a good night's sleep. And I just morph financial risk management into sleep as a risk management issue. And now I write things, white papers, like the ROI of a good night's sleep. Let me take my skills, public speaking, writing, consulting, and let me just help people because how, you know, it was like employers, I don't care how an employee sleeps, that's at home. Well, guess what? Mm. How they sleep at home or on the road directly impacts how they're going to function at work. No, absolutely. You know, I noted that um, you launched your sleep ambassador um, role in 2006, which was the same that year that year. Well, that's what my research yeah. turned Yeah, 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 yeah. The same year that your daughter graduated from our collective alma mater, mm. Penn. And I just wondered, is there a, a, a correlation there in terms of... No, I think it was just a flow of timing. Mm. And um, I was, I've been very engaged at Penn, I should say that. I was um, on the board of overseers of the Graduate School of Education. They still haven't taken me up on on weaving sleep into the whole conversation, especially with chief learning officers. I mean, it, to me, how a kid sleeps is directly impacting how they function at school, and most of them aren't getting enough of it. But that's another story. I've also been for like 20 years, and I'm um, emerita now, on the Trustees Council for Penn Women. A group of women over the last 28 years or so have raised nearly 200 million for the university. Wow, incredible. So a powerful group of people from Andrea Mitchell to, um, I, I could go on listing, you know, <laughs> women, Jean Chatsky and all kinds of fascinating people who went to Penn who are on the trustees councils. Um, Aunt Nancy, when you talk about the ROI of sleep, the return on investment of sleep, share with us what that is. So, when you look at a balance sheet, assets and liabilities, if you've got somebody who's pretty tired, getting four or five hours of sleep, brags that that's all they need, caffeine all day, I can tell you right now, unless they're one of the very small one, two percent of people who are short sleepers, their brain isn't functioning. Their executive functioning, Ms. Kinsey did a great study on that, isn't so terrific. Mm. Their ability to, their reaction time, traffic and, and a meeting, their ability to make sound judgments, to evaluate the material, be it written, verbal, otherwise, in front of them, and make good decisions is compromised. Yeah. And so to me, you're putting that person on the liability side of the balance sheet in terms of human capital. And whereas a well-rested person who's thriving whose brain is functioning well, and not just short term. I mean, Alzheimer's doesn't start 20, 40 years, it not starts yesterday. And we now know the brain cleanses itself during sleep in ways that if you don't, your brain effectively becomes like a dirty kitchen. Yeah. So a well-rested employee is an asset. And I'm telling you, you know, in Japan, they look at your blood type sometimes when they put you in certain jobs, 
people should be evaluated for their sleep doesn't mean you don't get the job. It means you go through some kind of a sleep training mm -hmm. and education and training. But I think that people just don't recognize how important sleep is to their daily functioning. And we've just all pushed it aside. And as I like to say, you know, it's not so much balance sheet oriented, but our behaviors haven't, our behaviors have changed, not our biology. Yeah. And our biology will take eons to change. Yeah. So, so the reality is that the return on investment to sleep doesn't just affect how you perform at work. It affects how you function in life, in your relationships, certainly your health. And, and we're seeing that now more than ever. I mean, I've been at this for about 12 years and I have to be honest, no one was really talking about your immune system. Mm. It was about your, you know, your physical health. It was always about your physical health and this and that, and your executive functioning maybe. But now it's about your mental health and your immune health. And there was an article in the New York Times today, and it's so sad and scary about this mental health crisis we're facing. Not that we didn't have one before, yeah. but... My gosh, when I first wrote this, I was at an event where somebody very, very significant politically was speaking openly about mental health issues. And even then, and that's like 10 years ago, I knew that sleep was, uh, but my daughter's a psychotherapist, the younger one. She didn't learn much at Northwestern about sleep, if anything. Wow. And yet it's so integrated into all we do. And it, it shouldn't be, I, I try to empower people because no one can sleep for you but you. Yeah. And so I'm like this, this champion, this cheerleader about you can do this. No right. one can do it for you. Right. Oh, so, yeah. you know, in terms of the return on investment, it just percolates through every aspect of your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, you've been an advisor to a number of corporate sleep programs, and um, you've specifically said that sleep is a risk management issue. And, you know, risk management for larger firms is all about looking at where they have exposure and limiting their potential downfall or, or what could impact profitability. And um, sleep is one of those issues, one of those factors. And you know what? One of the problems, and I'm happy you asked, first of all, I really want to say I'm so enjoying this conversation. And it's fun to talk about how this germinated and its genesis and, and where it goes now and why, because well, thank you for I don't sharing. get asked that a lot. But, <laughs> but you know, these, these companies um, really didn't think about this issue, and they didn't think about how sleep, you know, you just said it, exposure, limit, limit liability, increased probability, you know, the bottom line is going to be impacted based on how people, whether they're at sale, LinkedIn is a client. Yes. And, and it's very sales driven. And we don't have a lot of data about if people sleep better, how is their sales potential? But I can tell you, it's probably pretty good just having done a, the first pilot I did with them and watching these people who didn't think they had a problem. And then they walk out of the room and somebody says, they are half asleep half the time. Yeah. And so I think that, but when I first did this, my first big account was a Fortune 25. And even though I've been in, it's named their name in the press, I've been very honorable and not said the name, but it's a large manufacturing company with well over 100,000 employees globally. And 
they dealt with because they have so many shift workers yeah. fatigue risk management was something that was in the vernacular for years but that went through the health that went through the safety and envir environmental safety people it did not go through hr it's a, like a chinese wall but that was always about managing fatigue and sleep was a part of it because they're very different and they're resolved they're, you know the only way to resolve sleepiness is to sleep fatigue right. could be physical fatigue it could be mental fatigue and it may be a nap or this or that but working with this fortune 25 i really got integrally involved i mean i was there for long periods of time working with the people we were doing the original pilots with and then at their headquarters in canada and started to see that this you know the executive uh, executive level management didn't quite get this yet still doesn't for the most part it's it's starting you know executives are starting to wake up to the importance of sleep and for those of you listening whether you know, you run a hedge fund, you have, you're an entrepreneur, you're an artist, you're, you know, you're in HR. This is just something, sit back and first of all, ask yourself, you got to put on your own oxygen mask first. Ask yourself how you're sleeping. And then go back and say, where does this fit into my organization? Where could I help people live well you know my my under the sleep ambassador my logo it says sleep well live well because mm -hmm. they're you know over the next 10 years of your life you'll spend about three of them sleeping and wow. they will think about it and yeah. they will color the other seven mm -hmm. and so working with these companies has been a joy because i get to use my expertise my background in you know in in corporate and risk management and all those things and put the language of sleep. So, but this is doable. This isn't cancer. Although yeah. if you don't get good sleep, whether you have what I call, and I've written an article about it, disordered sleep or a sleep disorder, which is disordered sleep is like poor sleep hygiene, poor sleep habits. But if you don't get on it, the comorbidities, the the disease risk, right. hypertension, cardiovascular disease, early dementia, early onset dementia, and mental health issues are all residue yeah. for sleep. Yeah, of course. Who would you say is an ideal client for you? What a great question. So, this is so funny you should ask that. Last year, I gave a keynote in London at this big sleep conference. And my title of my lecture was Sleeponomics. Nice. Everyone is a, a consumer of sleep. Mm. Now, the Sleeponomics, if you Google it, you'll get something in Korea, and I don't speak Korean or write it, so I can't. So <laughs> kudos to them. I did not try to trademark. It's a great word. But Sleeponomics, everyone is a consumer of sleep. So any employer who mm. employs anybody, now, I like large corporations because my colleagues and I at Resonia, for whom any, you go to thesleepambassador.com, you can click on for yourself, sleep well, live well to do this sleep, four week sleep improvement program, or you can click on for your corporation and learn what Resonia does. I'm the director of sleep health. Um, and so our clients, I mean, we're pretty much B2B, but I have a B2C option on there, which is, right. you know, click on this link and sign up for Sleep Well, Live Well, which 
we offer through a foundation that I happen to be on the board of the Foundation for Airway Health. Everybody's thinking airway was like a you know runway, mm. but an airway is this open space that needs to be open. And yeah. many people's airways is compromised, be it their nasal airway or through their throat, because for various reasons. Well, and that's what um, leads to sleep apnea. It, 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 it is. It can be. Uh, but, you know, there's all kinds. People may not have. I have mild sleep apnea. I wear an oral appliance. I don't wear a CPAP, which opens, which is basically a nice. blower motor. Yeah. But I jut my jaw forward. I didn't have it four years ago. I, but there's other things. People can have something called upper airway resistance syndrome. They're tired all the time. Yes. They don't have sleep apnea, but they're not breathing well. They're not oxygenating properly. I'm a certified breathing trainer and I can just tell you something, and some will agree, I've been doing yoga for over 40 years. You should be breathing in and out through your nose. <laughs> and as one doctor said to me recently, he said it on a webinar, and I called him after I said, oh my God, can I quote you on this, Mark? He said, sure. He said, you should breathe through your mouth as often as you eat through your nose. And that was that. <laughs> that was the best one I'd heard. But if you have a deviated septum or you have congestion, and the best sleep technology is inside of you. Mm. I'm on a campaign campaign to help empower people that they just need themselves to fall asleep. Well, I was just going to say, uh, you do a fair amount of writing um, as well. You've written for Thrive. You've had articles appear in Huffington Post. Um, share about that side of your work. So um, I, I am historically a writer, and i very specific about writing. My favorite articles that I've written in the last year are the ABCs of ZZZs, <laughs> Lovely. Because I want, and it, it's airway, breathing, and consistency. Mm. And I just wanted to make, keep it simple. Yeah. The second one was, I, I wrote an article, Is Your Sleep in Order? on Thrive. Just wrote an article um, for Chopra Global. Two of them. One was about, um, I did a, there's a bunch. If you go to thesleepambassador.com, I literally have all the COVID-related articles right, right. on the homepage and on the press page. So yeah. you can... You can get to those. But my re most recent article, I'm so excited about. It was sustainability in sleep, protecting the environment within and around you. Wow. Because if you Google, and I did, is why I was writing it, in sleep and the environment, you get your bedroom environment, which I call mm. your sleep sink. You get all about that stuff. But nobody talks about insufficient sleep, which the CDC calls a public health epidemic. Nobody talks about how we impact the environment. Hmm. When we sleep insufficiently, we use more resources, energy, yeah. gas, food. Yeah. We tax our internal environment in a finance term. And I thought, wow, I got to write about this. You surrender to sleep every night. And when you go to sleep, for those of you listening who, for whom you have difficulty, you know, you can change your your brain knows what you tell it and maybe when you go to sleep at night you say i am so grateful for a good night's sleep body you've done so much for me today feet you don't have to move so much brain do your nighttime processing encode those memories i can't possibly remember everything i see and do mm. and think and hear and just i'm gonna let you relax 
and just, just surrender to slumber. Yeah, you've said that uh, it feels like it's one of your more significant sleep tips is this sense of gratitude. It is, to me, it's really the game changer. When you get in bed at night, yeah. just the first, just lay there and say, what am I grateful for? Yeah. And maybe it's a piece of cake you had. <laughs> and maybe it's the book you just were reading. And maybe it's nothing. Yeah. Maybe you are so PO'd and so miserable and so upset. Someone you know died. You just right. lost your job. You didn't get the funding for your startup. Whatever it is, if you can't be grateful for anything, thank your heart for beating. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, Nancy, you did a fair amount of teaching uh, over the years. You were uh, taught at NYU, and now LinkedIn Learning has uh, invited you to teach a class for them. Share about those experiences. So I think my NYU course was, it was, um, it was Sleep Well, Live Well, maybe I called it that, but it went on for about six semesters, and it was to um, adults, mainly adults. Students could could take it. And that was just monumentally a big deal because nobody had done much um, online learning at that point. It was very early. Um, the head of wellness at um, LinkedIn, Michael Susi, who's probably to me, has got the most robust uh, wellness program of any company. He's got what he calls the six tenets of wellness. Let's see. Breathing, thoughts, rest, hydration, um, nutrition, and movement. Wow. It's just so smart. And so he, I've been doing a lot for them, obviously, on sleep. And I've tied sleep to all of those other tenets of wellness. Sure. And he, they asked him if he knew anybody who could do a course on sleep for LinkedIn Learning, which they hadn't done. And yours truly was selected. I mean, I had to really interview and show a lot of, you know, clips and Wow. And I was just, I'm really honored. So, well, and you, they flew you out to their studio in California. Yeah, it's the largest studio out in Carpinteria outside of um, Hollywood. And fortunately, we finished on February 28th. <laughs> just in time. Uh, really, there were people with masks on the plane. And, yeah. um, and I didn't see the course till it came out on May 7th. It's called Sleep is Your Superpower. Nice. And I think you can get it, you can get, there's some way you can get it um, through LinkedIn for like 24 hour access, but you can get a month free. I'm working on a book with Mayor Krieger who did this book. And if you go on Apple, oh. you can get it for free and sleep in art. Well, are you developing yeah. an app of your own? <clears throat> I am. Yes. If I get that. to it. Well, <laughs> a colleague of mine who, like last, this guy, I mean, Norm is like, Last week, he spoke to the chairman of Walmart and the chairman of Macy's. He introduced me to this developer. They've been in business for like 20 years in India to create an app related to sleep like no one's done. And my goal is, and it is very much a daytime app. It will not be next to your bed. Right. But it is teaching you almost like a habit maker, but not, not in a pejorative way. A Absolutely. good night's sleep starts when you wake up. By the way, I mean, it is called mining the nonlinear path. Yes. And your path when you fall asleep is pretty nonlinear. We know mm. that from our dreams. You go all over the place. You don't know where you'll go. But when you do lay down, you can set the stage 
for a peaceful night. You can think peaceful thoughts, positive thoughts. If you tend to have bad dreams, especially now, I mean, if not bad dreams, people are having really crazy dreams. And just, just set your subconscious for what you'd like to see. Maybe you're working on something and you say, I'd be happy to dream about some epiphany for this project. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. But sleep, what happens in your mind and subconscious during sleep is relatively nonlinear, but that's the beauty of it. Mm. Because you're not, our lives are so linear. We see time is so linear. And in many ways, that's what we're missing. That may be part of what this whole chrysalis COVID-19 thing is about is just getting out of our linear existence and just letting ourselves be then more do, 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 do in such a linear path. So that's my pontification on your beautiful tagline. I love how you woven that into advice on sleep. So well done. Well, extreme gratitude for you, Aunt Nancy. Thank you again. Thank you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.